Chapter 9, Part 4 of Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. Edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Chapter 9, Part 4. The Nuremberg Stove by Louise de la Rome. Part 4. Midnight was once more chiming from all the brazen tongues of the city when he awoke, and, all being still around him, ventured to put his head out of the brass door of the stove to see why such a strange bright light was round him. It was a very strange and brilliant light indeed, and yet, what is perhaps still stranger, it did not frighten or amaze him, nor did what he saw alarm him either, and yet I think it would have done you or me, for what he saw was nothing less than all the bric-a-brac in motion. A big fat jug, an apostle Krug of Krusen, was solemnly dancing a minuet with a plump fazen jar. A tall Dutch clock was going through a gavotte with a spindle-legged ancient chair. A very droll porcelain figure of Zitzenhausen was bowing to a very stiff soldier in terracoot of Ohm. An old violin of Cremona was playing itself, and a queer little shrill plaintive music that thought itself merry came from a painted spinet covered with faded roses. Some gilt Spanish leather had got up on the wall and laughed. A Dresden mirror was tripping about, crowned with flowers, and a Japanese bonze was riding along on a griffin. A slim Venetian rapier had come to blows with a stout Ferrara sabre. All about a little pale-faced chit of a damsel in white Nymphenburg china, and a portly Franconian pitcher in gray-gris was calling aloud, Oh, these Italians, always at feud. But nobody listened to him at all. A great number of little Dresden cups and saucers were all skipping and waltzing. The teacups, with their broad round faces, were spinning their own lids like teetotums. The high-backed gilded chairs were having a game of cards together. And a little sax poodle, with a blue ribbon at its throat, was running from one to the other, whilst a yellow cat of Cornelius Zatzlevens rode about on a delft horse in blue pottery of 1489. Meanwhile, the brilliant light shed on the scene came from three silver candelabra, though they had no candles set up in them. And what is the greatest miracle of all? August looked on at these mad freaks and felt no sensation of wonder. He only, as he heard the violin and the spinet playing, felt an irresistible desire to dance too. No doubt his face said what he wished, for a lovely little lady, all in pink and gold and white, with powdered hair and high-heeled shoes, and all made of the very finest and fairest mise and china, tripped up to him and smiled, and gave him her hand, and led him out to a minuet. And he danced it perfectly. Poor little August, in his thick, clumsy shoes, and his thick, clumsy sheepskin jacket, and his rough homespun linen, and his broad Tyrolean hat. He must have danced it perfectly, 
this dance of kings and queens in days when the crowns were duly honored for the lovely lady always smiled benignly and never scolded him at all and danced so divinely herself to the stately measures the spinet was playing that august could not take his eyes off her till the minuet ended she sat down on her own white and gold bracket i am the princess of saxe royale she said to him with a benignant smile and you have got through that minuet very fairly then he ventured to say to her madame my princess could you tell me kindly why some of the figures and furniture dance and speak and some lie up in a corner like lumber it does make me curious is it rude to ask for it greatly puzzled him why when some of the bric-a-brac was all full of life and motion some was quite still and had not a single thrill in it my dear child said the powdered lady is it possible that you do not know the reason why those silent dull things are imitation this she said with so much decision that she evidently considered it a condensed but complete answer imitation repeated august timidly not understanding of course lies falsehoods fabrications said the princess in pink shoes very vivaciously they only pretend to be what we are they never wake up how can they no imitation ever had any soul in it oh said august humbly not even sure that he understood entirely yet he looked at hirschvogel surely it had a royal soul within it would it not wake up and speak oh dear how he longed to hear the voice of his fire king and he began to forget that he stood by a lady who sat upon a pedestal of gold and white china with the year seventeen forty six caught on it and the meson mark what will you be when you are a man said the little lady sharply for her black eyes were quick though her red lips were smiling will you work for the conlish porcelain manufacture like my great dead candler i have never thought said august stammering at least that is i do wish i do hope to be a painter as was master augustine hirschvogel at nurnberg bravo said all the real bric-a-brac in one breath and the two italian rapiers left off fighting to cry benone for there is not a bit of true bric-a-brac in all europe that does not know the names of the mighty masters august felt quite pleased to have won so much applause and grew as red as the lady's shoes with bashful contentment i knew all the hirschvogel from old weit downwards said a fat-gray de flandre beer-jug i myself was made at nurnberg and he bowed to the great stove very politely taking off his own silver hat i mean lid with a courtly sweep that he could scarcely have learned from burgomasters the stove however was silent and a sickening suspicion for what is such heartbreak as a suspicion of what we love came through the mind of august was hirschvogel only imitation no 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 he said to himself stoutly though hirschvogel never stirred never spoke yet would he keep all faith in it after all their happy years together after all the nights of warmth and joy he owed it should he doubt his own friend and hero whose gilt lion's feet he had kissed in his babyhood 
no, 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 he said again, with so much emphasis that the lady of Meissen looked sharply again at him. No, she said with pretty disdain. No, believe me, they may pretend forever. They can never look like us. They imitate even our marks, but never can they look like the real thing. Never can they chassent de race. How should they, said a bronze statuette of Vischer's, they daub themselves green with verdigris, or sit out in the rain to get rusted. But green and rust are not patina. Only the ages can give that. And my imitations are all in primary colors, staring colors, hot as the colors of a hostelry's signboard, said the lady of Meissen with a shiver. Well, there is a Grace de Flandre over there, who pretends to be a Hans Kraut, as I am, said the jug with the silver hat pointing with his handle to a jug that lay prone on its side in a corner. He has copied me as exactly as it is given to moderns to copy us. Almost he might be mistaken for me. But yet what a difference there is! How crude are his blues! How evidently done over the glaze are his black letters! He has tried to give himself my very twist— but what a lamentable exaggeration of that playful deviation in my lines, which in his becomes actual deformity. And look at that, said the gilt cordovan leather, with a contemptuous glance at a broad piece of gilded leather spread out on a table. They will sell him cheek by jowl with me, and give him my name. But look, I am overlaid with pure gold, beaten thin as a film, and laid on me in absolute honesty, by worthy Diego de los Georgias, worker in leather of lovely Cordova, in the blessed reign of Ferdinand, the most Christian. His gilding is one part gold to eleven other parts of brass and rubbish, and it has been laid on him with a brush. A brush! Pa! Of course he will be as black as a crock in a few years' time, whilst I am as bright as when I first was made and unless I am burnt as my Cordova burnt its heretics, I shall shine on forever. They carve pearwood because it is so soft, and dye it brown, and call it me, said an old oak cabinet with a chuckle. That is not so painful. It does not vulgarize you so much as the cups they paint today and christen after me, said a Carl Theodore cup, subdued in hue, but gorgeous as a jewel. Nothing can be so annoying as to see common gimcracks aping me, interposed the princess in the pink shoes. They even still my motto, though it is scripture, said a Trockrug of Regensburg in black-white. And my own dots they put on plain English-China creatures, sighed the little white maid of Nymphenburg, and they sell hundreds and thousands of common china plates, calling them after me, and baking my saints and my legends in a muffle of today, It is blasphemy, said a stout plate of Gubbio, which in its year of birth had seen the face of Maestro Giorgio. That is what is so terrible in these bric-a-brac places, said the princess of Meissen. It brings one in contact with such low, imitative creatures. One really is safe nowhere nowadays unless under glass at the Louvre or South Kensington. And they even get in there, sighed the grey de Flandre. A terrible thing happened to a dear friend of mine, a terracoot of Blasius. 
You know the Terracoots of Lassius date from 1560. Well, he was put under glass in a museum that shall be nameless, and he found himself set next to his own imitation, born and baked yesterday at Frankfurt. And what think you the miserable creature said to him with a grin? Old Pipe Clay, that is what he called my friend. The fellow that bought me got just as much commission on me as the fellow that bought you, and that was all that he thought about. You know it is only the public money that goes, and the horrid creature grinned again until he actually cracked himself. There is a providence above all things, even museums. Providence might have interfered before and saved the public money, said the little mycin lady with the pink shoes. After all, does it matter, said a Dutch jar of Harlem. All the shamming in the world will not make them us. One does not like to be vulgarized, said the lady of Meissen angrily. My maker, the Krabche, did not trouble his head about that, said the Harlem jar proudly. The Krabche made me for the kitchen, the bright, clean, snow-white Dutch kitchen, well nigh three centuries ago, and now I am thought worthy the palace. Yet I wish I were home. I wish I could see the good Dutch vrouw and the shining canals and the great green meadows dotted with the kine. Jan Oselin, called Krebche, the little crab, born 1610, the master potter of Delft and Harlem. Ah, if we could all go back to our makers, sighed the Grubio plate, thinking of Giorgio Andrioli and the glad and gracious days of the Renaissance, and somehow the words touched the frolicsome souls of the dancing jars, the spinning teapots, the chairs that were playing cards, and the violin stopped its merry music with a sob, and the spinet sighed, thinking of the dead hands. Even the little sax poodle howled for a master forever lost, and only the swords went on quarreling, and made such a clattering noise that the Japanese bonza rode at them on his monster and knocked them both right over, and they lay straight and still, looking foolish, and the little Nymphenburg maid, though she was crying, smiled and almost laughed. Then from where the great stove stood there came a solemn voice. All eyes turned upon Hirschvogel, and the heart of its little human comrade gave a great jump of joy. My friends, said that clear voice from the turret of Nuremberg, Feintz, I have listened to all you have said. There is too much talking among the mortalities, whom one of themselves has called the windbags. Let us not be like them. I hear among men so much vain speech, so much precious breath and precious time wasted in empty boasts, foolish anger, useful reiteration, blatant argument, ignoble mouthings, that I have learned to deem speech a curse, laid on man to weaken and envenom all his undertakings. For over two hundred years I have never spoken myself. You, I hear, are not so reticent. I only speak now because one of you said a beautiful thing that touched me. If we all might but go back to our makers. Ah, yes, if we might. We were made in days when even men were true creatures, and so we, the work of their hands, were true too. We, the begotten of ancient days, derive all the value in us from the fact that our makers wrought us with zeal, with piety, with integrity, with faith, not to win fortunes or to glut a market, but to do nobly an honest thing, 
and create for the honor of the arts and god i see amidst you a little human thing who loves me and in his own ignorant childish way loves art now i want him to forever remember this night and these words to remember that we are what we are and precious in the eyes of the world because centuries ago those who were of single mind and of pure hand so created us scorning sham and haste and counterfeit well do i recollect my master augustine hirschvogel he led a wise and blameless life and wrought in loyalty and love and made his time beautiful thereby like one of his own rich many-colored church casements that told holy tales as the sun streamed through them ah yes my friends to go back to our masters that would be the best that could befall us but they are gone and even the perishable labors of their lives outlive them for many many years i once honored of emperors dwelt in a humble house and warmed in successive winters three generations of little cold hungry children when i warmed them they forgot that they were hungry they laughed and told tales and slept at last about my feet then i knew that humble as had become my lot it was one that my master would have wished for me and i was content sometimes a tired woman would creep up to me and smile because she was near me and point out my golden crown or my ruddy fruit to a baby in her arms that was better than to stand in the great hall of a great city cold and empty even though wise men came to gaze and throngs of fools gaped passing with flattering words where i go now i know not but since i go from that humble house where they loved me i shall be sad and alone they pass so soon those fleeting mortal lives only we endure we the things that the human brain creates we can but bless them a little as they glide by if we have done that we have done what our masters wished so in us our masters being dead yet may live and speak then the voice sank away in silence and a strange golden light that had shone on the great stove faded away so also the light died down in the silver candelabra a soft pathetic melody stole gently across the room it came from the old old spinet that was covered with the faded roses then that sad sighing music of a bygone day died too the clocks of the city struck six of the morning day was rising over the bayer schwenwald august awoke with a great start and found himself lying on the bare bricks of the floor of the chamber and all the bric-a-brac was lying quite still all around the pretty lady of meissen was motionless on her porcelain bracket and the little sax poodle was quiet at her side he rose slowly to his feet he was very cold but he was not sensible of it or of the hunger that was gnawing at his little empty entrails he was absorbed in the wondrous sight in the wondrous sounds that he had seen and heard all was dark around him was it still midnight or had morning come morning surely for against the barred shutters he heard the tiny song of the robin tramp tramp too came the heavy step up the stair he had but a moment in which to scramble back into the interior of the great stove when the door opened and the two dealers entered bringing burning candles with them to see their way august was scarcely conscious of danger more than he was of cold or hunger 
a marvellous sense of courage of security of happiness was about him like strong and gentle arms enfolding him and lifting him upward 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 hirschvogel would defend him the dealers undid the shutters scaring the red breast away and then tramped about in their heavy boots and chatted in contented voices and began to wrap up the stove once more in all its straw and hay and cordage it never once occurred to them to glance inside why should they look inside a stove that they had bought and were about to sell again for all its glorious beauty of exterior the child still did not feel afraid a great exaltation had come to him he was like one lifted up by his angels presently the two traders called up their quarters and the stove heedfully swathed and wrapped and tended as though it were some sick prince going on a journey was borne on the shoulders of six stout bavarians down the stairs and out of the door into the marienplatz even behind all those wrappings august felt the icy bite of the intense cold of the outer air at dawn of a winter's day in munich the men moved the stove with exceeding gentleness and care so that he had often been far more roughly shaken in his big brother's arms than he was in his journey now and though both hunger and thirst made themselves felt being foes that will take no denial he was still in that state of nervous exaltation which deadens all physical suffering and is at once a cordial and an opiate he had heard hirschvogel speak that was enough the stout carriers tramped through the city six of them with the nuremberg fire castle on their brawny shoulders and went right across munich to the railway station and august in the dark recognized all the ugly jangling pounding roaring hissing railway noises and thought despite his courage and excitement will it be a very long journey for his stomach had at times an odd sinking sensation and his head often felt sadly light and swimming if it was a very very long journey he felt half afraid that he would be dead or something bad before the end and hirschvogel would be so lonely that was what he thought most about not much about himself and not much about dorothea and the house at home he was high strung to high emprise and could not look behind him whether for a long or a short journey whether for weal or woe the stove with august still within it was once more hoisted up into a great van but this time it was not all alone and the two dealers as well as the six porters were all with it he in his darkness knew that for he heard their voices the train glided away over the bavarian plain southward and he heard the men say something of berg and the wormsee but their german was strange to him and he could not make out what these names meant the train rolled on with all its fume and fuss and the roar of steam and stench of oil and burning coal it had to go quietly and slowly on account of the snow which was falling and which had fallen all night he might have waited till he came to the city grumbled one man to another what weather to stay on at berg but who he was that stayed on at berg august could not make out at all though the men grumbled about the state of the roads and the season they were hilarious and well content for they laughed often and when they swore did so good-humouredly and promised their porters fine presents at new year and august like a shrewd little boy as he was who even in the secluded infall had learned that money is the chief mover of men's mirth thought to himself with a terrible pang 
they have sold hirschvogel for some great sum they have sold him already then his heart grew faint and sick within him for he knew very well that he must soon die shut up without food and water thus and what new owner of the great fireplace would ever permit him to dwell in it never mind i will die thought he and hirschvogel will know it perhaps you think him a very foolish little fellow but i do not it is always good to be loyal and ready to endure to the end it is but an hour and a quarter that the train usually takes to pass from munich to the wormsee or lake of starnberg but this morning the journey was much slower because the way was encumbered by snow when it did reach posenhofen and stop and the nuremberg stove was lifted out once more august could see through the fretwork of the brass door as the stove stood upright facing the lake that this wormsee was a calm and noble piece of water of great width with low wooded banks and distant mountains a peaceful serene place full of rest it was now near ten o'clock the sun had come forth there was a clear gray sky hereabouts the snow was not falling though it lay white and smooth everywhere down to the edge of the water which before long would itself be ice before he had time to get more than a glimpse of the green gliding surface the stove was again lifted up and placed on a large boat that was in waiting one of those very long and huge boats which the women in these parts use as laundries and the men as timber rafts the stove with much labor and much expenditure of time and care was hoisted into this and august would have grown sick and giddy with the heaving and falling if his big brothers had not long used him to such tossing about so that he was as much at ease head as feet downward the stove once in it safely with its guardians the big boat moved across the lake to leone how a little hamlet on a bavarian lake got that tuscan sounding name i cannot tell but leone it is the big boat was a long time crossing the lake here is about three miles broad and these heavy barges are unwieldy and heavy to move even though they are towed and tugged at from the shore if we should be too late the two dealers muttered to each other in agitation and alarm he said eleven o'clock who is he thought august the buyer of course of hirschvogel the slow passage across the worm sea was accomplished at length the lake was placid there was a sweet calm in the air and on the water there was a great deal of snow in the sky though the sun was shining and gave a solemn hush to the atmosphere boats and one little steamer were going up and down in the clear frosty light the distant mountains of zillerthal and the algal alps were visible market people cloaked and furred went by on the water or on the banks the deep woods of the shores were black and gray and brown poor august could see nothing of a scene that would have delighted him as the stove was now set he could only see the old worm-eaten wood of the huge barge end of chapter nine part four recording by dion gines salt lake city utah